We weren't supposed to feed them, but we did. I chose this particular title because everybody knew that. I don't care if you were a little kid or if you were an antique elder. Everybody that used the prisoners in their beet fields knew we weren't supposed to feed them, and almost everybody said, but we did. A couple of disclaimers. Pictures may be of poor quality. Some of them came out of really crummy newspapers. Some of them were copies of the microfiche, so I apologize for that. We also got quite a few from the county extension agent reports from the special collections at Montana State University in Bozeman. The other one I might say POW once in a while, but during World War II they appear to be a, been called PWs. Same group whether I do my generation or my parents' generation. I don't really know about you, but I kind of like proving experts wrong. I'd heard about a book called Nazi Prisoners of War in America, written by a Dr. Arnold Kramer from Texas A&M. So I called him, and I said, what do you know about prisoners of war in Montana? And he answered, there weren't any. And I had to say, oh, there were, because my grandfather used them. And so that began our discussion. And although this has nothing to do with Montana, most of the people I tell it to find quite interesting. Dr. Kramer was interviewed for the Johnny Carson show, and it was taped ahead of time. So the night that his interview was on, he watched it. And about two in the morning, the phone rang. And a voice said, did you write that book about Nazi prisoners? And he said, yes, and he's grumpy, and why the H are you calling me this time of night? And pardon me for making up the name, because I don't remember the prisoner's name. But the man said, does the name Johann Schmidt mean anything to you? And Dr. Kramer said he sat straight up in bed, because that was the one POW out of almost a half a million that was never repatriated back to Europe. And he wanted to become a U.S. citizen. He'd been a successful contractor in Chicago, had a family. I don't know how you raise a family without ever talking about your childhood or your young adulthood, but evidently he did. And the man asked Dr. Kramer to help him become a U.S. citizen, and Dr. Kramer did. This particular sign is at Riverside Park in Laurel, and I'll read it to you because I've been told that it's kind of hard to read. During World War II, captured enemy soldiers resided in a temporary work camp here at Riverside Park. Captured in German and Italian uniforms, the prisoners of war were not necessarily from those countries, but had been forced to fight for the Axis. Nearly 500,000 POWs from battle in North Africa and Europe were imprisoned in year-round camps throughout the United States. They were sent out on temporary work camps. Montana had as many as 19 at one time of these temporary camps. Each year from 1943 to 1946, prisoners of war were sent to the Yellowstone River Valley to work the local sugar beet fields. The prisoners of war, mostly German, worked during the spring thinning beets because you were supposed to only have one beet per about one square foot to make them grow big and have the right kind of sugar. And then they also helped during the fall harvest. Here at Riverside Park, PWs moved in during the spring or fall for short periods of 7 to 21 days. They spent all summer here in 1945. The prisoners were issued government GI dungarees or denim with PW painted on each leg in letters 6 inches high and the jackets with the bold letters PW on the back. They were supervised by military police guard. And although World War II did end in 1945, 
PWs came back the next spring. In 1946, the United States repatriated all the last prisoners, except that one, and none remained in our area or returned. These truly were enemy soldiers captured in battle in North Africa and in Europe. Mostly they were wearing the uniform of the country they were forced to work for. And when they knew they had to surrender, some of them told the people here that they listened very, very hard to surrender to somebody speaking English. They were terrified of surrendering to the Russians, probably with good reason. By the end of World War II, there were as many as 158 main camps in the United States and temporary work camps in Montana and throughout the U.S. By the end of the war, there were about 370,000 Germans in the camp, 53,000 Italians in camps, and only 5,000 Japanese, because in the Japanese culture you were not to surrender, and for the most part the Japanese did not. The U.S. observed the Geneva Convention, a treaty so new no one had really practiced using it before, included proper food, housing, clothing, medical care. The Red Cross delivered mail from home and checked on camp conditions. We did that partly because that's the way we are, and partly we hoped it would make a difference in how our GIs were treated in German prison camps. We know that all prisoners were treated better than the French prisoners or the Russian prisoners. And there is a little bit of evidence from that time that the US guys were treated better than Canadians or British. Nobody was treated well, however. Most of the main camps were in the southern part of the country. It was warm down there. You didn't have to worry so much about heating. And the PWs from Germany were usually the organizers of the camp. And they did such things, with American help, as offer university courses. And being the typical, stereotypical Germans, they gave tests, they kept grades, and they issued credits. And some of the people were able to go to college in Germany using those credits after the war and after things had settled down. The Geneva Convention said that privates, the grunts, could be required to work for the captors, but not in any direct war-related effort. They were to be paid something, they could save it for the return home, or they could spend it in the canteens if they wanted something to buy. In our country, the U.S. maximum rate per day was 80 cents. Some went back home with a few hundred dollars. Once when I was giving this program a number of years ago, one of the members of the audience had been an American GI in a German prison camp. And he almost cried when he heard about proper food, proper home, housing, clothing, and especially about being paid something. It's kind of one of the sadder programs I had to deal with. Some of the camps, like the ones here in Billings, were tent camps. Some used existing buildings, whether they were military bases, fairgrounds, CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps camps, schools, or whatever. Here in Billings, the first prisoners were actually up at what was then Billings Polytechnic Institute, now Rocky Mountain College. The building is gone. But some of the professors from the time that the prisoners were here talk about how they had written their names on the walls inside that old building that doesn't exist anymore. They were to do a number of things, including helping with the college work, such as working in the granary or working in the printing shop. But they were also supposed to be building the first of the camps that came to here, down by the sugar factory. Reveille was about 5.30 a.m., breakfast, what you needed to do, and then you were off in groups of about 20 with one guard to go to work for the day. You'd be back for supper, 
And then usually you could do a little something of your own, even if it only meant washing clothes. Here in Montana, most of our homegrown men were in the service, or perhaps back on the east, not the east coast, the west coast, building planes or ships because you could make so much more money that way. <coughs> not very many stayed on the farms. But sugar beets at that point were highly labor intensive. Needed help in the spring for thinning and blocking, and needed help in the fall for harvest. Why sugar beets? Sugar was necessary for alcohol that helped make rubber and helped make munitions. Beets are a one-year crop, sugar cane is a two-year crop. It's easier to increase beet production by far than it is to increase cane production. But where in the world would the labor come from? So they tried things. Close the businesses at one o'clock, everybody in town gets to go out to work. I don't know about your hands, my hands are not going to do that kind of work and very good. My back's not going to take that kind of work, and that's how a lot of people in town felt. Shut down the agricultural college, Bozeman. Send all the students out to work. Well, they didn't have hands a whole lot different than mine. That didn't work very well. Try this, try that. And finally, in 1943, somebody said, well, the Geneva Convention says we can make them work. So that was kind of the decision. But then you have to think about the consternation throughout the country. You really want to put healthy, well-trained, well-fed, strong German soldiers in our community? What about rape, pillage, burn, sabotage, terrorism? The list could go on and on and on. And then there were the labor unions crying, don't take work from Americans. The PWs were brought here. That's in Malta, by the way. The PWs were brought to Billings and to Montana um, by train, and most of the camps held between 150 and 500. I don't know who held 500 because they said Billings was the biggest camp, and the biggest number we found was 450, but they claimed 500. And they would be here for that very short period of perhaps one to three weeks. Oops. There were two newspapers that we were able to get quite a bit of stuff from. This is the Gazette, and you'll see more about that in a bit. They did the job, and then they moved on. The next time, whether it was next fall or next spring, a totally different group of PWs came in. Only in 1945 did the camps last all summer, and that was because there were so many PWs they didn't have to keep shipping around anymore. And Eisenhower had more waiting in England than were already in the United States. And the president, but they didn't tell me what month it was, and Roosevelt died in April, and so I don't know what, which president it was, but the president said, don't send any more, the war's going to end fairly soon. Here in the Yellowstone River Valley, there were several camps. Billings, Laurel, Fromberg, Bridger, Ballantyne, Forsyth, Mouth City, Hardin, Sydney, and maybe some others in other places. But it wasn't just the Yellowstone Valley. They were in Malta, Harlem, Chinook, Glasgow, Fort Shaw, Vaughan, Victor, Stevensville, and Corvallis. Back then, there were five sugar factories in the state, and they all needed help. So the farmers had to be ready before they could use the prisoners. Sorry, I got behind on my slides. They had to be ready, and that meant a number of things at different times. The farmers here, the county extension agent had a terrible time getting them together, but they had to help build the camp, and they did it very grumblingly. 
I think it was taking them away from what they wanted to do, and they kind of thought the prisoners should build their own camp. The um, concrete that they poured was of such poor quality that it's long gone and has been for a long time. But the farmers themselves, especially for harvest, had to be ready. They had to have a certain amount of acreage, and very few sugar beet farmers had that much acreage on their own, so they tended to pair up or triple up with family or friends or neighbors. They also had to have certain equipment so that everything was done. Then you had to call the sugar company field man, and he had to come approve of your need for labor. So once they did all of that, then they could assign you a crew, and you had to go pick them up in those covered trucks, and that was a requirement too. In some cases, if I was paired with, say, two of my brothers, we might draw straws, and we're going to do my place first. We're going to do his place second, and his place last. In some cases, we'll do my place today, his tomorrow, his the next day, and we'll circle around. So maybe if we're doing all of mine first, it's going to freeze, and guy number three is going to lose his crop. Or maybe if we do mine and, and whatnot, nobody's going to get a crop. So it, it was a real con contest when people were trying to figure out how we're going to use these guys efficiently. Besides not feeding them, they weren't supposed to take pictures, so we always thought it was funny when groups of PWs showed up. In the camps, fewer than 10% of the people stayed behind. Some might have been on sick leave, some were doing administrative work, some were cooking. They did different chores, but almost all of PWs went out to actually work. With the covered truck, there was a letter written back to John Moore in the Park City area from one of the PWs that said, I know why they had to have a covered truck. They didn't want us to know there was a refinery around. I don't know if you grew up in the Billings or Laurel area, but I think you would have to be deaf, <laughs> blind, and have absolutely no sense of smell to miss the refinery. We used to try to hold our breath going past that refinery, and it was a long ways past, and it was almost impossible to hold it quite that long. But the farmers had signed an agreement. They were not supposed to feed them. They weren't supposed to take pictures of them. They weren't supposed to give them anything. But most people did give them food of some sort or something to drink besides plain water. And amazingly, I mean human nature, amazingly, crews tended to work much harder for people they enjoyed and who gave them stuff. Duh. <laughs> the other rule that got shot down in our area was you were not supposed to speak to anybody directly. It was one of these really complex things. So here's the farmer who has to talk to the translator to tell him what he wants the men to do. The translator has to talk to the leader. The leader is supposed to tell the guys what to do. Well, we had one crew around here that was the Berlin Symphony. I don't know what it sounded like to the guys, but I don't know how anybody in the Berlin Symphony would have a clue what a sugar beet farmer needed done. Eventually, and very quickly in some cases, we had a lot of Germans from Russia that had come here specifically to grow sugar beets, and they began talking to the people directly. And I think everybody was pretty relieved because then they could do demonstrations, they could do actual talking, and, and suddenly things got a lot easier. But because people had to sign this thing about don't talk, when we started this, we knew we needed to talk to a number of people who had used prisoners. And one of the ladies that was doing investigation was going to talk to a former neighbor. So she went to her former neighbor, and I don't know exactly the words, but you know, tell me about the prisoners of war. And the lady said, no. I'm not going to talk about them. We weren't supposed to feed them, and we did. And I cannot afford to get into trouble at this time of my life. 
Now, if you've been in Montana a while, you undoubtedly remember the Freeman mess up out of Jordan. That was going on at the time. So I called Sherry Matuzzi's office and talked to her secretary and said, with everything going on, this is going to sound really stupid, but, and I told her the story, Sherry herself called me back and said, poor lady, that's most likely the most illegal thing she's ever done in her whole life. Please tell her the United States government will not prosecute anybody who fed them, took pictures, or gave them anything. So Becky went back to talk to her, but she had carried the guilt for so long, even then she wouldn't talk about it. And I think that's a sad story. For guilty for killing somebody, that might be one thing, but guilty for feeding them? Kind of a strange, kind of a strange thing. So one woman told us, that yes, her husband had used the PWs, but he shook his finger at her. And he said, you close the curtains and you stay inside. They haven't seen a woman for a long time. So she doesn't know anything about him. One man remembered being about eight, and he kind of fell in love with the PW, and he would work beside him. And then he and his little brother would play prisoner and guard. Well, of course, big boy, he got to be the guard. And he found a broken tooth out of one of those old wooden hay rakes, and that was his gun. And he would march his brother all over the place. And then one day, his mother bought his brother a gray sweatshirt. So he took it out to the barn where there was roofing tar and roofing paper, and he painted a big PW on the back. And all he says is, that was not one of my better ideas. But most PWs were really happy to be here. They knew that um, they were lucky to have been captured by somebody, even if they tried really hard that spoke English. They weren't in Russia because they came across the ocean in ships and then across the U.S. in trains, they knew full well that it was not going to get them back home if they escaped. But under the Geneva Convention, it was the duty of a prisoner to escape. It was not a crime, which was why Dr. Kramer could help that one that never went back become a U.S. citizen. He was not a criminal for escaping. He was only doing the soldier's duty. They say that out of that almost half million PWs in the U.S., that only 2,000 ever escaped, and half of those were gone less than one day. We, of course, have our escape stories. There's a group of 13 out of Harlem, way up north, that decided they were going to walk to Canada. But however they did it, it was a very lonesome landscape. They said there were no houses, no water, no shade, no roads. They turned around and came back. <laughs> a couple of other guys on the Yellowstone River found a rowboat, so they floated it down to Mile City. Now realize, six inches high PW on their pants and also on their back. They floated it down to Mile City and were picked up window shopping in the saddle shop. <laughs> the one that I think is probably the funniest were the two guys from Sydney that decided they were going to escape by hopping a freight. They picked the wrong one. It went straight into the sugar factory. <laughs> now, most farmers really had planned to stick by their word and not feed them. After all, they'd given their word when they'd signed the paper. But this whole thing about trying to talk to them and stuff that was getting so complicated, other things got complicated too. So John Moore said that the first day that he had the crew at his place, they came to him at noon and said, we can't work anymore. Their lunch consisted of two slices of bread. They said, we just can't do it. So he went to the mercantile and bought cheese and meat and all kinds of stuff, and then he spread the word, if you want these guys to work, they have to be fed. And so they got fed fairly well, at least in the Park City area, as well as most other things. But some of the people who didn't feed them 
were the ones that didn't speak German, and they stuck by their word. In some cases, when the guard was being particularly obtuse and obnoxious, they would hide them by a certain fence post or under a certain tree. We had one man tell us that as they drove out of the yard, the guard was riding up front with his father. He was to run across the flume, and when they came across the cattle guard, he was to put all these donuts in the back end of the truck. So there were lots of ways they could do it. Up at Harlem, the supervisor of the camp called the farmers together and said, because of we learned how our prisoners were being treated in Germany, that they could only be given a quarter pound of meat a week, and that had to be organ meats and things that most other people wouldn't eat. And he said, they can't live on that, and they certainly can't do your work on it. So the farmers began bringing more food to camp. As one farmer up there said, never knew a farmer who didn't feed PWs even though you weren't supposed to. They were trying to get the crop out. You feed your horses, you feed your help. Another man told us that his dad intended to have the PWs come into the house for noon, for the noon dinner, but the guard wasn't going to let them. And so his dad told the guard, you're welcome to come in, but you have to leave your gun outside. And if you don't want to leave your gun outside, then you go off and eat the lunch you brought from camp. The guard came in. What a surprise. <laughs> now, Mr. Sheeler and his family were caretakers for Laurel. And when the camp was established at Riverside, they had to move out of the house they were living in because that was inside the barbed wire fence. They had to use different buildings. And so they began talking to some of the PWs through the fence. Both the watercolor and the neat little chalet were made by PWs in Riverside Camp and given to the Sheeler family. We have a couple of other things that I can show you. There was, of course, a lot of anti-German feeling around. Many people were very upset that when they had to march from the train to the camp, and that happened in many Montana towns, they were marching German military style and singing German military songs. And they were very upset. They just didn't think that should be happening in the United States of America, but it happened. We know that in one case, a guard was talking to a farmer and accused him of having pro-German feelings because of the way he was treating the prisoners. And he let the guard know in no uncertain terms, no, I have four sons that are in the military. I have very anti-German feelings. But these guys are trying to help me get my crop out. Another man, same sort of situation, this time he had three sons. And he said, no, I don't <coughs> like the Germans as war people. But I have three sons in the military, and I would hope that I am treating these as my sons might be treated if they were in a German POW camp. Dr. Stephenson was a dentist in um, Glasgow, and some of the locals up there thought he should never do any kind of dental work on the prisoners, no matter what the need was. Others thought if he did, he certainly ought to not give them Novocaine or any other kind of anesthetic. And Dr. Stephenson let them know, I will run my business and my office the way I want to run my business and my office. And Dr. Stephenson kind of took the camp under his wing, and he arranged for them to have movies <coughs> once a week, and so the prisoners really liked Dr. Stephenson. And one of them, Lily Marlene, was a very common song. We had it in America with English words. And one of it was something about, with your sweetheart underneath the lamppost by the gate. And that's what this was carved into the end of a wooden apple box by a prisoner and given to him. And then there was Gladys. She was a very disgruntled teenager. 
as in very disgruntled teenager. She was cooking for her aunt and uncle. Her uncle was out harvesting, her aunt was driving the beet truck. So one night when their day's work is done, the aunt stops by the house and informs her that one of the PWs is having a birthday tomorrow, bake a cake. Remember, this is from scratch. This is long before boxes for cake mix. She wasn't happy, but she baked a cake. And then she said, in a voice quite filled with disgust, you can't believe how many of those guys had birthdays and how many cakes I had to bake after I had everything all cleaned up. So one night when they came, and again, somebody's going to have a birthday, she said, well, I don't care. My birthday's tomorrow. So they asked for a picture. That's in the upper left-hand corner. That was her high school picture. They came back with the drawing and with what they called an ash tree. It's wooden. And on the bottom, it says something about from the evil POWs. <laughs> and then there was Gerhard and his wife. Gerhard became pretty good friends with um, John Moore of Park City, to the point where they continued writing, as John Moore did to several people. And Gerhard, when he got back, his wife was in East Germany. And there was a whole sad tale of how they finally got back together. And then, of course, surprise, she got pregnant. Even if you had money, Germany had been so destroyed, you couldn't buy anything. So the Moors did up a care package, and they sent some baby things, including a blue baby blanket. And you can see them holding that blue baby blanket decades later when the Moors' daughter and her husband went over to visit them. That was really important to the Moors, so important they still have it. <laughs>